started sneaking on them one step at a time. It was about 45 minutes later. I had traveled maybe 50 yards, and I looked to my left, and there he was laying down 15 yards from me, looking the other way. Shot him in his bed. Big Buck Registry's Deer Hunting Podcast, powered by Advanced Takedown Tree Stands, episode number 208. Joe Donito, Adirondack Deer Trackers, and Snow Days. Please support our sponsors as they make this show possible. Today's show is sponsored by Advanced Takedown Tree Stands, the Horny Buck Seed Company, Covert Scouting Cameras, and Morse's Sporting Goods. Big Buck Registry is a virtual museum of hunting stories. We preserve a piece of Americana by interviewing and recording hunters about their hunts and experiences from across the country. And who knows, maybe we'll learn a thing or two along the way that'll help us take our hunt to the next level. Hey, this is Adam Hayes from Team 200 and TheMoonGuide.com, and you're about to push play on one of my favorite podcasts, Big Buck Registry. This is Brian Hardy from Hardy Face Paint, and you're listening to my favorite podcast, The Big Buck Registry. Hi, everybody. I'm Michael Waddell with the Bone Fletcher TV Show, and you're getting ready to listen to another episode of the Big Buck Registry Deer Hunting Podcast. Welcome, fellow predators, to the Big Buck Registry's Deer Hunting Podcast. My name is Jay, and for Dusty Phillips and Jim Keller and the entire staff at the Big Buck Registry, I'd like to say we appreciate you tuning in and hanging out with us because we know that you're looking for something important. We know that you're looking to make yourself a better hunter, and hopefully we can help you get there by bringing some of the best content and delivering interviews from some of the most amazing deer hunters on the planet. Now, if you are tuning in for the first time, I would encourage you go back through our entire catalog. I guarantee you that we've touched on some subject matters already that will be of interest to you no matter where you are in the country, no matter what style of hunting you like to do. There will be an expert somewhere in the catalog that'll help you get better at your craft. Also, we're not just located on this particular place where you are listening now. There are other places where you can find us. I'm going to go through the quick list so that if you have a more compatible place to listen than where you are now, then you may want to switch over. Here are the places we're at. We're on iTunes. And please, if you are an iTunes user, please leave us a review and subscribe to the show. We're also found on Stitcher and TuneIn Radio. Both of those are good for Android devices. And Blueberry and Lipson. And there are several podcast players that carry the RSS iTunes feed you will most likely be able to find us in these other podcast directories. Which one suits you best? I'll leave that up to you to decide. For those of you who are loyal listeners who are returning, thank you so much for coming back each and every week and giving us your support. Speaking of support, if you would like to help us on this show, if you'd like to become a patron of this show, there is a place to do it. You can go find out more information at www.bigbuckregistry.com forward slash pledge. And all the information will be right there, and I'll let you know how you can help this show by by donating on a monthly basis, a little bit of money or a lot of money, whatever you feel is important to keep this show up and running. We do have a budget. We do like to keep the lights on here, 
And we certainly like to keep delivering great deer hunting content each and every week. This week's guest is Joe Donito. He's an Adirondack deer hunter and tracker out of New York. And you guys and gals requested Joe as an interviewee. And I'd like to remind anybody that's listening, if you have somebody that you would like us to interview, if there's a subject matter you want us to delve into, I've got a long list right now that was sent in from various listeners over the last few months that we're going to try to touch on. But if you would like to add to that list, all you have to do is send an email to either Jay or Dusty at BigBuckRegistry.com. As I had mentioned, this week's guest is Joe Donito. The deer drag of a tracker can last for hours. Trackers venture deep into the big woods on the trail of a mature buck wherever that track may roam. By necessity, trackers become some of the most skilled navigational woodsmen on the planet. The ones that don't become skilled with a compass and topo map never come home. Joe Donito has been tracking big bucks on snow for 30 years now, and he doesn't appear to be slowing down anytime soon. Joe is patient and waits for those snow days before stepping into the woods. This style of hunting doesn't require scouting, scent control, playing the wind, tree stands, or moon phases, but it does require snow, a compass, a flashlight, and preferably a GPS. Joe says the first step in shooting a big mature buck using this method is finding the holy blank buck track. From there, it's a game of pursuit and persistence and a pure disbelief in the word can't. Joe shares numerous stories in this interview and details what is important and what is not. Before we turn to the interview with Joe Donito, let's turn to Jim Keller with the Deer News. For the Big Buck Registry, this is Jim Keller with the Deer News. Our first story this week, mineral blocks, salt licks, and other deer feed now banned in Ozark County, Missouri. This story was originally featured on the Ozark County Times website. The Missouri Department of Conservation has expanded restrictions on feeding deer and placing minerals for deer from 29 to 41 counties throughout the state, effective July 1st. The restrictions now include Ozark County, where mandatory tissue sampling of deer harvested during the opening weekend of the November portion of the firearms deer season, November 11th and 12th, will also be required. The new regulations are intended to help limit the spread of chronic wasting disease. The 41 counties where the regulations now apply comprise MDC's CWD Management Zone, the MDC-designated counties in and around areas where CWD has been found. Besides Ozark County, the 11 other counties recently added to the CWD management zone are Barrie, Benton, Cedar, Dade, Hickory, Polk, St. Clair, St. Francis, St. Genevieve, Stone, and Taney. They were added in response to finding CWD in Jefferson and St. Clair counties during MDC sampling efforts last season and the finding of CWD last year in hundreds of deer in northwest Arkansas near the Missouri border. According to the Wildlife Code of Missouri, the placement of grain, salt products, minerals, and other consumable natural and manufactured products used to attract deer is prohibited year-round within counties of the CWD management zone. Exceptions are feed placed within 100 feet of any residence or occupied building, feed placed in such a manner to reasonably exclude access by deer, and feed minerals present solely as a result of normal agricultural or forest management or crop and wildlife food production practices. These locations must be cleaned up 10 days before hunting anywhere in that area. 
Sneaky Deer Moms Use Other Species as Babysitters. This story was originally featured on the Inside Science website, was written by Nayla Rogers. Mule deer mothers are fierce, rushing to the rescue when they hear the bleat of a fawn in peril. White-tailed deer are comparatively timid, but they may have found a sneaky way to protect their babies anyway. They use mule deer as a sort of free babysitting service. Mule deer and white-tailed deer are approximately the same size, with ranges that overlap across much of North America. In both species, mothers leave young fawns concealed in the grass, returning periodically so the fawns can nurse. While studying deer on a cattle ranch in the 1990s, Susan Lingle, now a behavioral ecologist at the University of Winnipeg in Canada, noticed that white-tailed deer often left their fawns near female mule deer while they were went off to browse. On multiple occasions, Lingle saw coyotes try to kill white-tailed fawns, only to be driven back by the striking hooves of an adult mule deer. Moreover, white-tailed fawns were more likely to survive in years when mule deer were abundant. Now, Lingle and her colleagues have looked deeper into the 1990s data to better understand what the white-tailed mothers are up to. They found that mule deer moms tended to stay close to their concealed fawns while white-tailed moms wandered farther afield. And while the two species are often found together, it was usually white-tailed deer who came to join mule deer groups, not the other way around. Perhaps most strikingly, female whitetails actively chased away other females of their own species, but hardly ever showed aggression towards mule deer. Together, the findings suggest that whitetails actively take advantage of mule deer's protective instincts, said Lingle. The research, which is not yet published, was presented earlier this month at the Animal Behavior Society's 2017 conference at the University of Toronto in Scarborough. Michigan wants hunters to shoot more deer to control bovine tuberculosis. This story was originally featured on the interlockenpublicradio.com website and was written by David Castleman. State officials want hunters to shoot more deer in northeastern lower Michigan, a lot more. Infected deer in this area spread a disease called bovine tuberculosis. It can kill cows and it can be passed to people through unpasteurized milk. The state has already spent more than $150 million trying to eradicate the disease over the past two decades, but infection rates have spiked among the deer population in in recent years, and several cattle herds have been newly infected. Deer and cattle can transmit TB to each other at the feeding trough through saliva or their breath. Russ Mason, the Wildlife Division Chief of the Michigan Department of Natural Resources, says the state has been able to bring the percentage of infected deer down over the years, but TB has stuck around at low levels. The DNR wants hunters to kill more does to shrink the herd. To do that, the state is proposing something called antler point restrictions for all hunters in this area. People can only shoot bucks that have three or more points on one of their antlers. The hope is that if young bucks are off limits, hunters will take more does instead. The reward would be a larger population of older bucks with larger racks. The state's Natural Resources Commission will vote on the antler point restrictions at a meeting later this month. That concludes this week's edition of the Big Buck Registry's Deer News. Special thanks to my son, Ben, who provided two of the stories this week. For links to the stories featured this week, please check our show notes at www.bigbuckregistry.com. If you have any ideas for future topics or have any questions about any of these topics, please email me at jim at bigbuckregistry.com. For the Big Buck Registry, this is Jim Keller with the Deer News. Without further ado, here's Joe Donito. Joe Donito, welcome to the Big Buck Registry's Deer Hunting Podcast. How are you, my friend? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. You've uh, become a celebrity uh, in the eyes of a lot of our listeners, and you became highly requested. I don't know about all that, but I'm certainly certainly glad to be on the show. 
Lord, we, we like to please. And so we, we reached out to you, and you were gracious enough to oblige. So thank you very much. You're very welcome. Let's uh, let's get into some of your background, Joe. I, uh, I'm very curious to find out a little bit more about you. I've not attended any of your seminars, but someday I hope to. And uh, I understand that you're in and around the Ad- Adirondack area, and we've ventured down this path a couple times with Todd Mead, who I understand, and, and after reading some of your book, that he was meant or did the foreword in your book. So we know we, we're a little familiar with Adirondack, but it seems like everywhere you go, each hunter that hunts a certain area has a different style. So I'm curious right. to see how you do it because, uh, and I love the trackers. Trackers are my favorite because I'm kind of, I'm one of them too. Right, right. Well, a little bit about my background. Um, uh, my family had a dairy farm. We're about an hour south of the, what I call the true Adir- Adirondacks. Uh, grew up uh, grew up hunting here on the farm somewhat uh, when I was pretty young. Shot my first buck when I was 12, but always had that lure for those Adirondack woods. Um, we always appreciated those bucks more. Uh, we used to have a saying when I was a kid, um, you go to the Adirondacks to hunt bucks, you go down south to kill bucks. And by south, we mean south, southern New York hunting farmland bucks. Gotcha. And uh, we just appreciated them more up there. Gotcha. Right, that makes sense. So what was uh, what was life like growing up? Well, where I was at, like I said, we had a small dairy farm. We milked about 100 cows. Um, when fall rolled around, uh, hunting was the topic of the day. Almost every day we'd lose about an hour of work just talking, sure. talking about hunting. I've got an older brother. He's, uh, 13 months older than I am. And we were hunt partners, trapping buddies right from the get go. I, I wonder how many hours like collectively we've lost amongst all hunters at work. I mean, how many hours did we burn up just talking about it? Never mind actually doing it. Right. Yeah. And it didn't take much in the, in the fall of the year. Before the season, you get a cold morning, and you you know it, it wouldn't take much to to lose an hour. Somebody that just briefly say something about hunting, right. and an hour would be shot right there. And what's funny is I get a lot of emails that say, "Hey, I'm I'm listening to your podcast right now, and I'm at work." So I can't imagine about the <laughs> the productivity has just gone gone through the the bottom whenever when we launch this podcast. I think. Well, when you got to take a break from work, what other what better way to do it than to talk or think about hunting? Right. Joe, who are your who are the people that you turn to to learn deer hunting when you were a kid? Well, obviously my dad was a big influence on me, but I think his philosophy on life when I put it into hunting was the reason why I became somewhat successful at hunting. My dad believed that he never believed in the word can't. You know, if, if you put your mind to it, you can do anything. And when it comes to tracking, sometimes that comes into play. You gotta have the the confidence and and uh, the where all and uh, the, the the determination, I guess, would be the correct word to 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 make it happen. Right. And that was my father's philosophy. Right. When I read one of the stories, and I'm sure you'll get into this in a little bit, one of the stories in your book, you talked about a four-hour drag, and I pretty much had given it all I could. And then you heard your your buddies coming up the trail with a slice of pizza and a beer. I think it was. Yeah. And, and it just it just it, it resonates a four hour drag that's a right. long time to be dragging a decent sized whitetail by yourself right yep that buck uh in the adirondacks the, the good bucks are 175 to just over 200 pounds he weighed 191 i know just which buck you're talking about but what a lot of people don't understand is that if you're if you're dragging this buck and you're that far in the woods i can't think of anything else i'd rather be doing 
at that time of year. So to drag for 20 feet, 30 feet, 50 feet, or 50 yards, you're headed toward the road, you're headed toward your truck, you're headed on your way out. That consistent determination of getting that buck out will eventually lead you to your truck. Right. It will. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. And it's, it's, it's what we're all there for. Right. You know, I, I don't look down on the drag. I look forward to it. Right. Obviously, there's places where you're looking back at the buck and you're going two feet at a time because you're on an incline or a hill of some sort. But right. you will make it. The reason I ask the question is is not so much that I don't look forward to the drag. I do. It's, it's one of my favorite parts because I know mm-hmm. something good has happened. It's, right. It's oddly enough one of the most frequently asked questions that we get. Like, well, you know, we've done these shows with these trackers, Lane Benoit, mm-hmm. Hal Blood, the Salernos. But the one question we always forget to ask is how long's the drag? So, right. And I, I don't know if this is your typical situation, but it seems like it might be because you get so far out there that a drag back could take quite a long time. And that's true. Obviously, I mean, to state the obvious, uh, you know, depending on where you kill them, the closer to the road, the less the drag. But I never, ever let that influence on whether or not I give up on a buck whatsoever. I would say if I was to put it in averages, and I would like to clear this up right now, throughout this whole interview, nothing's 100%. These are just things that happen, um, and I I believe in that. I could say a technique I use, it's not 100%. I can can say a different uh, way that I drag the bucks. Nothing's 100%. But when it comes to how far you take these bucks out and how long the typical drag is, I would say one out of every five bucks I have to leave in the woods overnight. Um, three out of five, I definitely have to get help to get them out and maybe one or two, I can get out on my own in the same day. So as a general rule, I'm either getting help or leaving them overnight. Okay. And and that's, I think that's been kind of this toiling question in everybody's mind. Well, what happens when it gets so dark and you're exhausted? Do you just pack it up, head out, go back the next day with friends and, and finish the drag? That's exactly right. Right. Exactly. But I, I, I can't remember a single buck where I shot him, gutted him, and left. Every one of them I, I head for the road with. And it can be really toward evening. I'll drag after dark because I'm thinking, what, what else would I rather be doing? Right. What I a, drag till I'm, till what I'm tired. A, what else is there to do? I mean, really? Yeah. <laughs> At yeah. that time of the year. I mean, unless, exactly. unless you get someplace that was pre-scheduled. But other be. than that. I mean, right, right. You almost build it in, don't you? I mean, like, well, I know I'm going to be out. I'm going to be out the dark. I might be on this buck for a while, and or if I find it before before dark, I'm going to drag it during the night. What's unless it's just a, a brutal weather pattern that you really don't want to get caught up into? I can't see why you wouldn't. Right. Actually, yeah, to be honest with you, most of the bucks that I do kill, I've got it in my head that I'm going to get them out that day, shortly right. after the kill. Right. Then shortly after starting a drag, you realize probably not going to happen. Right, right. <laughs> you know, but, right. But the intention is good when you're fresh. Yes. The, the, <laughs> the, the, the morning track is always, yeah, there's, there's no stopping you, right? Right, right, correct. So who taught you how to track a buck? It's kind of a, kind of a neat story on how I became a tracker, which also leads into um, who taught me, but when I was growing up, my dad always took the lead. My brother would be second, and I would be third. And I felt like by the time I seen the track, it was already old, and everybody viewed it. So I always wanted to be in the front of the line, so to speak. Right. But, of course, dad led my brother second, me third. 
Well, on a couple of our small drives, and I do want to mention when I first started hunting, I did a lot of tree stand sitting, okay. a lot of small drives in the Adirondacks. Gotcha. So I'm familiar with a lot of different kind of hunting. Um, the small drives were still hunts to each other, um, and we'd sit morning and night. Well, whenever I got the opportunity to take the new stand that nobody had been to, I did, because I wanted to see the track first. And that was from the time I was 13 on up. Of course, I read the Benoit book, as most trackers have. Mm -hmm. But my, my, my desire to be the first one out there, the first one to see the track, or the first one in an area that nobody had been in 20 years, is what turned me to tracking. I think you got to have a love for the woods to become a really good tracker. Right. Can you describe the terrain? For somebody that is listening that isn't familiar with that area, can you describe mm -hmm. what it's like uh, to somebody that wouldn't really say they're, maybe they live in California, Arizona, and they're not familiar with this this part of the world can you describe it well i would say it's to me the picturesque area that i'd love to hunt would be hardwoods it's what i would call a step above rolling hills in other words it's not just a small incline that goes up 100 or 200 feet it could be 500 to a thousand feet 500 yards from the road is just as different as the next five miles and by that i mean you can be just as lost or just as uh in the wilderness just as as close as 500 yards from the road. Um, the creeks, the green, the, the tops of these hardwood ridges, it's like no other place, I believe, on earth. The Adirondacks are, are what I call home. Very nice. So, Do you remember the first firearm that you ever shot? Yeah, I believe it. Well, I probably shot a 22 as a kid, but the first real weapon was a 20-gauge Ithaca pump. Okay. And it happens to be the gun I shot my first buck with. Excellent. Can you tell us the story behind that that first hunt? That was uh, that was something that was kind of unique in itself. My dad had gone down south, if you can imagine, to go hunting with uh, with his brother in law, my uncle. And me and my brother got up that morning and skipped school to go hunt. Me being twelve, him being thirteen, we went behind the house, which was part of our farm. And not to get into a ton of details, but my brother made a small drive to me, one of those still hunt drives. And the spike horn came out to me. Um, I shot him, and he went right down. Mm -hmm. uh, went to 10 yards or so closer. He was only 30 yards away from me to begin with. So now he's only 20 yards away, and I took a second shot to, to finish the buck off, and I missed. But he expired in the meantime, shortly thereafter. My brother never heard or thought that it was me who shot. So I had a little fun with him when he got there. He asked me, you know, did you see anything? I said, yeah, I seen a buck. He says, you seen a buck? Why didn't you shoot? <laughs> I says, I did. You didn't hear me? And he says, I didn't think that was you. I says, yeah, it was me. He said, did you get him? I said, no, I missed him clean. He says, how do you know? I said, well, I just think I did. He said, well, which way did he go? I says, well, he went that way. He says, well, let's, let's, let's go check. You never know. Let's go check. And, of course, I'd already seen the deer. And I had pointed in the direction the deer was. And he got about 10 yards from the deer. And he spotted it. And I said, do you have your knife? And that's, I can remember it like it's happening right now. Gotcha. That was 40 years ago. That's awesome. Very nice. What would you say your your philosophy of hunting is these days? Um, like what, is I, it, what does it mean to you? Hunting, when, when fall rolls around, hunting is my relaxation time. Okay. It's my passion. It's what I love to do. I think anyone should at least give tracking a try if they've got a, either a small incline to do it. Because I think it's the most rewarding style of hunting. At least for me, it was. And I'm not taking away from any of the other styles of hunting. 
I've done them all, and I think they should keep doing them if that's what they enjoy. But if you're sitting in the tree stand on one day, you're making the small drives on the other, and then on the third day it snows, there's no reason why you can't go track. Right. Do you find yourself getting involved in other styles of hunting today, or do you wait for the snow? I'm an exclusive tracker nowadays. Okay. Um, it seems like everybody's schedule is getting tighter and tighter. And I can tell you this as we get more into the method and the techniques and whatnot, but eight out of every 10 days that I go out to track, I'll be within 200 yards of a mature Adirondack buck. If you can show me another way that I can have that kind of chance at success, I'll change the way I hunt. Gotcha. Very cool. Very cool. Let's, uh, let's transition or transition into some techniques and styles and things like that you do a lot of seminars i do i'm curious to find out like how it goes and let's start off with what's the first or what's the most common question that you get asked at these seminars well when we get done with the seminar we always have a question and answering part and probably some of the most common but i i I pride myself in to think I've covered all the areas that I need to during the seminar. But one of them is the point you, you brought up. How do you get these bucks out? Or do you ever worry about getting these bucks out? Is a very common question. But probably the second most common question would be, do I use any type of cover-up sense? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't. Um, okay. And the third most common, maybe the cover-up scent was the third, but the, the, the idea that they think that the cover-up scent just isn't part of of my game plan and probably the next one would be where where can i try this where can i go gotcha okay oh let's let's cover let's get into some of some more details about all that stuff let's start with with just the basics joe what what is it that you explain to the the person that is just starting out how do you get them to understand where to begin well i think my my theory on eight out of every 10 days is what piques their interest as far as uh, when I'm doing a seminar, someone who's just starting, I cover what gear we need, which um, I do very quickly because, you know, nobody nobody really wants to hear it, but it's so important. But a map, a compass, and a flashlight are essential. The rest, you can go with or go without, but you have to have those three. Um, we talk about GPSs, mm-hmm. but most of all, I think to get these guys that think they might want to try this style of hunting, um, we talk about the the ability to change the situation when you're a tracker that buck is in front of you it's your job to catch him you have the ability he's there he's not in someone else's garage who got him yesterday he didn't get hit on route 274 the idea to change the situation and have a full day hunt on the buck you want is i think the biggest draw to do this i'm not sure that covered your question but that's that's the love of the game okay all right. So when you're when you're hunting a, a buck, when you go tracking, let's say, mm-hmm. do you? And I've heard there are all different types of variations on this with different styles of hunting. A lot of guys will go after one particular buck because they know that particular buck's in the area. Is that the same for a tracker? No. Okay. No. Um, th- there's times that I'll go back to an area that I've seen a big track on a previous hunt or even the year before, and could possibly run into that deer. But no, I do not zone in on any given deer. I like my territories, but to be honest with you, there's a lot of days I'm in a brand new area I've never seen before, simply because that's where it's snowed. Okay. So you're following, it sounds like, the weather pattern. You're going where the snow is, as opposed to trying to hunt and hoping that the snow shows up. No, 
Right, right. correct. Okay. Being a dairy farmer, we didn't have much time to hunt. So if you've got limited time to hunt, it seems like everybody's life is getting busier and busier. Yeah, you. I pick what I call the killing days. And the killing days are the ones that the snow's on the ground and I can go track. If it's not snow on the ground, I'm usually working. Okay. And I want to set the stage here a little bit because, I mean, we talk a lot of different strategies and techniques that different people are using and where they're hunting and how they're hunting. And there's some things that just keep coming up over and over. One, and, and I think I know the answers to these questions, so I just want to, I just want to make sure that it's on the record. A lot of guys will, will follow this, this cover sense and sense. You kind of already discussed that. You don't get into the sense stuff. You don't worry about it. You don't right. worry cover sense. Do you worry about anything to do with it, like the wind direction as you're approaching the tracks and following the tracks? Do you care that you're downwind of the buck? Yeah, that's that's a very common asked question. Um, as far as the wind goes, do I ever leave the track? If the wind is wrong, do you circle? In my experience, that wind in the Adirondacks can be blowing right in your face one minute, and literally a minute, minute and a half later, you're getting the wind on the back of your neck. You know, it seems to swirl these rolling hills it doesn't seem to be real consistent and the buck can also turn he could be going straight ahead in 100 yards ahead of you he took a left and you know you you swung to the right and you wasted a lot of time so in in my my philosophy on it is don't worry about the wind if it messes you up it was a bad day we'll get him tomorrow okay the there are some guys in the world that have shot some giant deer adam hayes for example excellent <laughs> excellent deer hunter uses the moon guide to f- decide when to hunt and which days. So if it's, and it, and it has to do with the, he calls it the red moon it has to do with when the moon is overhead or underfoot relative to sunrise or sunset. Those are when he feels are the best days to get out. Mm-hmm. Do you follow any of that? No. Okay. None of it. I do have some philosophies on, on the time of year though, that I think most hunters should know uh, if they're going to try this. And uh, in New York, our season's six weeks long, um, and it starts in the, the third week of, uh, after the third weekend in October and goes usually till the first weekend in December. And to me, there's three seasons within that season. There's the pre-rut, the rut, and the post-rut. The rut is the one I like the least, which you don't hear that often. But the the rut, and I consider the rut for a tracker the least favorite time from November 5th, 6th in that area to November 20th. That's when these bucks, when if they don't have a doe with them, can put on so many miles and cover so much territory, they're really uncatchable. Mm. I don't like that time frame. Now, if you go November 5th and sooner, November 6th and earlier, and you get a snow, that buck's catchable. He's thinking about the does. He's laying some sign down. He's, he's traveling more than he would in the summertime. But you can still catch up to them. November 5th to November 20th, I've tracked bucks where I picked their track up in the morning. It was an hour old. When I left him at the end of the day, I think he gained time on me. Really? I never caught it. Okay. That's how much they travel. And if you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. This buck is going to lose up to 20, even 25% of his body weight within a two to three week period. Right. They have got to be exercising 23 hours a day and they're not eating. Right. So... They're tough to catch then. And then if you go to the post-rot, the 20th, 22nd, 23rd to the close of the season, now they're starting to think, well, i got to put a little weight back on. I'm not looking for does quite as hard as I was. 
and they're definitely catchable. Okay. So your priority is to hunt when the snow is available to hunt. Yeah, I was just going to mention that, but I never pass up a snow day. It could be November thirteenth. Okay. I'm going to go. No, despite what you know, you're up against biologically. Yep. You're you're still going to go if the snow is available. Okay. Correct. All right. And it's an important point too. If anybody is taking down uh, important points, never pass up a snow day if you're going to be a tracker. Because you can have great snow on Wednesday and you got the weekend off, and by Friday afternoon the snow is gone. Okay. Thursday was a great day, and you didn't hunt. So I, I express this a lot in the seminars. If you could give me two weeks and I have to pick it ahead of time, vacation time, or five days, and I can pick them when I want them, I'll take the five days every time. Right. The, the snowfall itself must vary tremendously. There are years where we don't have any snow. There's years we have a lot of snow. There are years where you get a decent amount of snow and then followed by weeks of rain, and then you're we're walking on the most crusty, <laughs> unforgiving, uh, loud snow that there is. What's a tracker's favorite snow? What's a tracker's least favorite snow? Well, my favorite snow would be a two to three inches of, of nice, uh, packy snow, and then you get a, a, a new dusting uh, up to an inch on top every night. So then you get the fresh tracks and you, you, you're just golden. Anything over three inches, closer to four, a lot of the stick breaks, a little leaf rustle underneath if, if they happen to be drier or, or a little bit frozen, it really muffles it. Now, if you get over six to seven inches, the physical tack that it'll take on you when you're traveling this far, it's going to wear you out. Right. Uh, you know, in the 10 to 12 inches, just it just really takes the wind out of your sail. Obviously, the least favorite snow is that dusting to an inch that has frozen leaves under it. That's a nightmare in every way when it comes to snow. Okay. Are there times when the snow is available that you won't hunt because of certain conditions? No. Nope. It doesn't happen. Okay. Uh, that that dust and that frozen snow, I'll even go. Um, I, I got a saying at the seminars that uh, some people think that, well, Joe, you know, some of my buddies will break them on me. You know, you're lucky. You're the luckiest guy I know, this or that. And I tell them it's not that I'm lucky. It's that I put myself in position to get lucky. And even if it's a bad snow or not a great snow, if you're on his track and you're getting close to him, you're within a couple hundred yards, you just need a little luck. You need things to go your way, and you'll get your buck. Okay. Just a question as a, as a listener, just trying to chime in with a tracker. What's the success rate as far as the caliber of buck that you're looking for when you get on a, on a track? Is, uh, is there a percentage that you would say the success rate of actually seeing or harvesting the buck that you thought was the track of? Well, for one, it's it's 99% of the time it is the buck that I'm tracking. I did have one instance where another buck came in on me, and I didn't realize I you know, had two bucks in front of me. Um, as far as the success rate, um, about four or five years ago, I had added up my previous 11 bucks, seven out of the 11 bucks I shot in the first day I hunted that year. So if you think about being within 200 yards of a mature Adirondack buck, eight out of every 10 times you're out there, your success should be pretty high because you're that close. Um, it does take some time to get to that level, but in my my views, three to five days a year is all you need. Gotcha. Let's say, let's say you pick up a track uh, driving down the road. Can you distinguish okay. of body size, maybe antler, 
weight uh, on the head, pushing down the front hoofs. Can you distinguish the caliber of buck that is just by the hoof track? Well, I don't know how precise I can get, but I do have a method that I use every year. And I, and I mention it, and I know I've mentioned about the seminars a lot, but this is something that I've said for 20 years. If I look down at the track and I don't say, and I apologize for the cause for it, but if I don't say, holy I don't follow the deer. That makes sense. Yep. If you want to shoot big bucks, you have to you have to learn to step over the two and three year old bucks, and it's tempting to follow it. You've been looking for a track for three or four hours. You want to follow him. You're pretty sure he's a buck. He made a scrape. He rubbed his horns. Something about him. But if you want the old mature bucks, you cannot waste time on that buck. You have to step over and go on looking for the holy track. So it's safe to say that it's safe to say that if you don't get the holy factor involved uh it's not worth pursuing exactly right <laughs> okay <laughs> yep and i believe that 110 percent. gotcha it, it makes sense and uh you know somebody that's tracked and, and, and been successful like yourself that you know that's uh words of encouragement as far as what you're after if, if you don't get the the uh the holy factor right you you're wasting your time that it's a immature buck and it's some, something that you would burn the energy calories the the chance of getting lost or getting hurt or it's not worth it well i think more you know if you don't see the holy cow which is a nicer way of saying it you don't see the holy cow track there's only limited as we we'd already discussed a little bit you've only got limited amount of days that it's going to snow during the season in which you have the time off for you to waste any more than 10 minutes on that track is is, is ludicrous in my mind. He's, if, if if you want those big old mature bucks, you cannot waste any time on that track. Okay, let me ask you another yes. quick question. If you're a, a new tracker just getting into tracking, you've got a three to five inch snow on the ground. You mm-hmm. get out. Obviously, you find a buck track. Would, would you suggest that you try to find a mature buck track to get on for your first one, or should you go with a younger buck and, and, and just learn and educate yourself on that track? Would you go mature, or would you go for the, the three-, four-year-old buck? I, I'd still go mature, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you why. The mature buck is an easier buck to track, just simply because his, 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 the footprint on him is so much larger than – 90% of all the other deer, he's going to be easier to sort out when he gets in with other deer. Gotcha. Um, so I encourage everybody right from the get-go, don't learn from following does, don't learn from following two- and three-year-old bucks, learn from following the biggest, maturest buck, you know, the holy cow track. Gotcha. That, that makes sense. And that's something, uh, Jay, that that's one question that I wish we'd ask Lane Benoit, and I'm glad Joe answered it, but uh, I'm not comparing or, you know, trying to suggest that you know lane benoit or whatever but that's one question looking back on the lane benoit interview that there was a question i wanted to ask then and never right. did right i'm glad i asked right. it to you and, and uh, that's a great answer well i know laney and shane both uh in lane and then obviously lane passed away and i knew him as well but i can tell you 100 percent for sure that them guys only go for the biggest of tracks they don't mess around with three and a half year old bucks uh one of the reasons why laney's bucks average weight are are even more so than uh obviously most of the other hunters and maybe even a little bit more than his brothers is because he's even more particular than than i would be he doesn't want the holy cow track he wants the holy holy cow track (laughs) you know and he won't settle for less and that's just the type of hunter he is so and, and it is easier it is the way to go 
the other tracks are going to mix with other deer. You're going to get frustrated on which is which. That really big track's pretty easy to keep separate. Gotcha. Gotcha. Which yep. raises another question. Where would one find, or how does one find the holy cow track? That's, that's a great question. Um, how do you find the track? How do I go about this? A couple of the mistakes a new tracker makes is, for one, he gets in the woods and he starts deer hunting. Well, if you're going to be a tracker, you're not hunting deer, you're hunting tracks. You don't have to look up. You don't have to be quiet. You don't have to do any of those things. All you got to do is cover ground. You can't scare a track. So don't worry about the deer that you're going to bust out of the swamp. And don't worry about the deer that might be on the hardwood ridge. Don't even look up much. All you got to do is travel through the woods looking for the track. Because every minute you burn a daylight's one less minute you have to get that buck on that day. So in order to find that holy cow track, I stick to the hardwood ridges just because I don't want to cross the waterways. In other words, you know, the rivers, the beaver meadows and what like that. So I try to stay on the ridges Mm -hmm. and I try to cover as much ground as I can without, you don't have to worry about noise. You don't have to worry about wind direction. You don't have to worry about any of that. One of the mistakes a novice tracker will make is he'll come to a beautiful hardwood ridge and say, what a great place for deer. And he'll start still on. You're no longer a tracker then. You've taken it out of the game for that day. you got to cover the most amount of ground you can comfortably looking for the track. It's just the way I find them. And, and, you know, 19 out of 20 days, I'll find the track I want. Okay. And are you finding the track all on foot? Or are you using any kind of mechanical vehicles to to get there first? Well, that's the difference between the Adirondacks and a lot of other areas, Ontario, Maine, some of Vermont. Right. We don't have the logging roads. We don't have the accessibility roads. Right. So over the last 25 years, I think I've found two tracks of bucks that I've shot from the road. Okay. So, yeah, 90% of them, 95% of them are while you're in the woods. Okay. So you're, you're, you're getting out of your vehicle and you're hitting, Absolutely. The, hitting the woods. It sounds like on a very few occasions you may have come across one. Yeah, the, the only few that I've shot, you know, that I found the track on the road was only because I was driving to an area and I happened across the track that went across the road. I may have asked this question in a different way, but do you hunt if there's no snow at all? I do not. Okay. So literally, it's like without the white stuff, you're not going. Right, right. Um, I don't know if it's more because of the passion for the, for the tracking or if it's I've got so much else to do that I, 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 I just, I, I don't. I don't know for sure why, but I don't hunt unless there's snow. How many years have you been tracking deer now? Um, it's... I shot my first buck tracking when I was 22, and I'm now 52. So I've been tracking for 30 years okay. exclusively. Okay. Yeah. Over the years, as you've studied, I mean, you're 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 following a track, but you must be observing things as you go. Mm-hmm. What are some of the the things that stick out about the path of the big whitetail buck that you've noticed, and how do you use that in your hunting style? Well, I, I I've got a thing that. People that have been to my seminars have heard many times. Um, I've noticed these big white tail bucks are real similar to a to a man coming home from work. Hmm. And when you when you get out of your job and it's five o'clock and you're headed home, you jump on the highway and you're headed home. That's the buck out there in the woods looking for the does. He's taking the easiest path. He's on the highway. Okay. Now when he all of a sudden goes right or left, that's him getting off the off ramp. He's now settling into an area where he thinks he might get some food, just like you heading home. You get off the highway, you go you go off the off-ramp. Pretty soon you're taking some rights and lefts that are short. 
Now you're in your development. Well, that buck is doing the same thing. He's slowing down. He's starting to think about food. And all of a sudden, you pull in your driveway, and what do you do when you walk in the house? You go right to the refrigerator. (laughs) Well, all of a sudden, that buck is going to take a right or a left, and he's going to take a nibble of a bud. He's going to eat a mushroom. He's going to grab a fern. You're in the kitchen. You're both in the kitchen. Well, what do you do after you eat? You're either going to hit the couch or you're going to bed. He's going to do the same thing. And it's so predictable. And so uh, I would say out of the last, you know, 25 mature bucks I've killed, 25 of them were killed that way. Gotcha. All right. So you're, yep. you start to look for, for a pattern of left and rights and yes. nibbling and browsing. Well, the left and right is the key. If you can, if all of a sudden it doesn't make sense, the easiest path was straight ahead and the deer took a right or a left. It just, wait a minute. We've been going for an hour and a half straight away, taking the easiest path through the swamps, over the ridge. Everything is straight. All of a sudden, it just doesn't make sense that he made that turn. You know he's getting off the off-ramp. Okay, gotcha. And that's the most important part of all tracking. When is when? There's no sense on going fast on a buck that's 200 yards in front of you, but you sure can't go slow on one that's two miles out of you. Right. you got to know when the time is. So you're kind of paying attention to uh, speed changes in your pace. Yes, Absolutely. And you're really... when that buck is on the highway, I'm not worried about noise. Okay. I'm just moving. Okay. All right. So let's say you get to the turns. You know, mm-hmm. you know, we're starting to make the turns. And you've you've been on cruise control for an hour and a half. And you notice a change. What goes right. through your head at that moment as to what you this, need to do next? The very first thing when that buck makes that move, I say to myself, I hope I didn't blow it because I'm coming on hard. You know, I'm, 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 I'm traveling through these woods, not worrying about anything. When all of a sudden I see the turn, I hope he didn't live close to the highway. I hope he had to do a little traveling through the development before he actually got into his kitchen. Mm. And most of the time he has. For the most part, he's gone that 100, 200, 300 yards. And that's great. Now, if he just happened to turn off of the highway, go 20 yards, feed for 20, and lay down, you're probably already busted him out. But I'd much rather bust out a buck than it would have never have caught up to him. So I travel that fast travel when he's traveling fast. The second I see that he's done the turns, to get back to your question, I then slam on the brakes, my head comes up, and I become a moving tree stand. Mm. I take a step, and I wait for him to make the mistake. I give it three, four, five minutes, depending, and then I take another step, and I wait again. I don't take two steps. I don't take three steps. I only take one because I know he's within 200 yards of where I am. It might take me an hour, an hour and a half to get to where he is, but at least I'm not going to walk up on a running track. Gotcha. Uh, and hopefully, if I do it, I got a blood trail with it. Right, right, right. <laughs> so you're you're literally once you know you're in that zone, you're slow, mm-hmm. you're slowing it down. You're taking it step by step and looking all around. Right, and you, you, I'm not. I'm just standing there waiting for him to flick his ear, reach around and scratch his back. You know, flip his tail. Take a step, stand up out of his bed. I'm waiting for him to make the mistake. I can't remember a buck I spotted when, that I was moving on. All of the bucks have been standing still and let them make that mistake. Interesting. Okay. And I've certainly shot my share in the bed just because they, you know, flipped an ear, you know, turned their head or stood up and they shot him right where he's staying. How long did you say you pause during each step? Well, you know, that's that's a great question, and it, and it has a lot to do with the thickness of the terrain. Okay. If I'm in a lot of open hardwood, you know, I might not wait quite as long. I've looked it over pretty good, and it might only be a minute. 
you know, or so. But if I'm in a little thicker stuff and I know he's close, all signs point to this buck is close. He's feeding. He's right here. It's one step and I can wait four or five minutes just waiting for him to make that mistake. And the next step will be slow and painstaking and then I'll do it again. And I've had people say that, Joe, that's where I blow it. I, I always go too fast in the end. I, I can't go that slow. <laughs> and then, of course, I'll ask the audience, has anybody here sat in a tree stand before? And, you know, everybody raises their hands. I go, for two, three hours? Oh, yeah, two, three hours, no problem. Some all day. They said, you mean to tell me you can sit on a platform that's two by two for three hours, but you can't take a step every two to three minutes? Right. I don't believe you. <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense. Yeah. It's just having the confidence that the buck is there. Okay. All right. Just say, which I do. I just have that confidence that he's there. Okay. I I mentioned earlier, nothing's a hundred percent. And this is what I meant. You know, nine out of 10 times that buck is there. Every once in a while, you get the buck that he kind of fed a little bit and he kept cruising. Well, the only thing I lost is a little bit of time. I'll get through that 75, 80 yards. It might take me an hour, hour and a half or whatever it is. And then I'll realize this buck is back on the go. He's taking the easiest path. He's not feeding anymore. I'm still in the game and I'm going again. It does happen, but it's pretty rare. Okay. That was one of my questions. Do, do they off, Do they stop and have a snack and then say, I got to get going again? Well, you'll see that a lot more often from November 5th, 6th to the 20th. Gotcha. They are so hot for the does. You know, it's a couple of bites and then they're still going. When you get later on, let's not forget a deer has to chew his cud to digest his food. So if he's eating pretty heavy, he's really got the bread basket on, he's really grazing, he's going to lay down. Right. Just a matter of where and if you see him before he sees you. Right. Gotcha. So you're you're really just focusing on the track. You don't care about the terrain so much other than that you started high so you don't have to get down into the wet areas to try Correct. to cross. And you're not setting up on food plots. You're not setting up next to bedding areas. Uh, you're not hunting out of tree stands. You're, you're, you're not following the moon patterns. You're literally just, it's snow and tracks and, and that's it. That's it. And you know, in those big woods where it's miles and miles and miles of hardwoods, there, there's no bedding area. There's no feeding area. There's, there's none of that. There's just terrain. They eat when they're hungry. They lay down when they're tired. Right. You know, it's it's wherever they feel the need to do so. And, uh, you know, that's 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 a great part of it because you can go, you know, I've got different areas in the Adirondacks that some areas might even pick up too much snow. I've had, the, you know, 16, 18 inches. Right. And I got to drive through there to get to the edge of the storm where there's four to five hmm. and never been on that road before, never been in this area before and can still go out and have a great day. Gotcha. So you you will actually plan in your day where the snow is better. As opposed yeah. to deeper. Well, depending. Now, obviously, if there's two inches somewhere, I'll go for the five inches, which is deeper. Right. But, yeah, the goal is that three to five inches is what I'm looking for. Okay. That's interesting. I never put that together. Like, you, if you're trying to plan your day and, you know, you got a, a foot over in this town, but it didn't get hit as hard over in the next town over, you're going to the that next town over where it's three to five. Exactly. Yeah, because the deep snow is not better. Only mainly because it is quieter. But it's tougher to see the print. You can do a lot by the stagger, and that's the right to left. These mm-hmm. bigger bucks have bigger chests. Right. So the stagger is going to be wider. But it is a, it is tougher to, to keep him separate. It takes more you know more time if he gets in with other deer. And it's going to wear you out. That deep snow is tough to buck all day. Gotcha. Very you know, cool. Just, yeah. All right. So one of the things that we 
get a lot of compliments on is that we, we ask a lot of gear questions. I'm going to ask Dusty to take over this next part. Yeah, for sure. I want to start out, uh, first and foremost, is footwear. I want to know what you're wearing in the woods, Joe. What are you wearing as far as, say you're in three to five inches snow, what kind of footwear are you putting on? Well, I'm a, I'm a big believer in the lacrosse 18-inch boots, but I, I absolutely won't go in without the air grips. And those are those little buttons on the bottom. Um, I was told that about 10 or 12 years ago, that they were better traction in the snow, especially when it's a little bit of a slippery snow. And I only half believed them. I saw the cleats on the bottom. You know, it, it didn't really matter. And one day I went up hunting, and I had both pairs of boots in my truck. I drove up with just my shoes on, slipped on my my, uh, my boots, and I took off. I got about 100 yards from the truck, and I said, my God, this snow is so slippery today. And I flipped my boot up and looked underneath, and it, I grabbed the wrong pair. I walked back to my truck, slipped the other pair on, and was amazed and convinced of the difference. So as far as the footwear goes, I go with the 18-inch so I can cross the rivers, but I also go with that air grip. It seems to give me traction where the other ones don't. Is that is that just something that's uh, additive? You can slip over your boot, or is that something that's actually screwed into the boot? It's actually in the boot. Um, Lacrosse makes what they call the air grip. It's just a different type of bottom. I think it was probably originally designed perhaps for traction, but maybe for a little softer comfort with it. But I'll be honest with you, I trust it too much. I'll get onto a log or an incline, and I say I got the air grips on, it'll hold, and it usually does. I mean, it it makes a big difference on how you can get through the woods uh, with a little confidence and a little speed as compared to the regular bottoms. Well, it makes sense. Obviously, you're walking. How, How far are you walking? Is there any particular socks that you're wearing with the boots? No, myself, I just put on a light pair of cotton and then the wool's over them. I think everybody has their own temperature, so to speak, to be to the point of where they're going to sweat or they're going to stay warm or they're going to be cold. Uh, everybody has to find that happy medium, that, that spot where they can travel for the day, uh, not overheat, and then go slow, as I talked about, for an hour, hour and a half without freezing to death. And once you get it, usually most days it's going to be the same. You know, you don't you don't dress a lot warmer because it's a little bit colder it'll be the same outfit gotcha what uh what kind of pants and top are you wearing well i'm wearing just a regular cotton uh long johns underneath some polar fleece camo pants now in fact unfortunately these polar fleece are a little tough to come by they're not insulated but that's what works for me and then as far as on the top goes i usually have uh i guess they call them wife beater shirts but the the muscle shirts so to speak uh, close to my skin because it breathes more. You know, I, I don't have a, a T-shirt on. My shoulders are open. And then I'll take a, and this is going to seem a little off color or um, off the beat, but I take a flannel insulated shirt and I turn it inside out and I put it on. Just because that nylon next to my skin, when I have a little sweat and then I go slow, seems to be cold. Turn that flannel shirt inside out. I've still got the warmth of the shirt, but I don't get cold when I go really slow. It's just what works for me. Oh, very good. When you're you know, doing uh, your tracking, are you a uh, firearm or your archery? What do you, what do you carry? Well, I, I suggest to everybody, if you're going to become a tracker in the big woods, pick the right, lightest rifle that you're comfortable with. Now, obviously, you got to be really comfortable with your gun, but the weight will become a factor by the end of the day. So go with a light rifle that you're good with. Gotcha. And uh, any particular caliber that you're carrying that light rifle? Well, in my in my my theory or my way of hunting, I've got I've got two rifles. 
I love my 30 out six pump carbine. It's one the Benoit uses, Hal Blood uses. A lot of trackers use them. A lot of great trackers. That 30 out six carbine pump is the go to gun. I have that with a peep sight. Now, I do not like to carry a scope if there's any kind of misery in the air. In other words, if it's snow, if it's going to rain on the snow, which it sometimes does, or if there's snow in the trees from the snow the night before, the day before, whenever, I will not carry the scope. I, I find myself constantly trying to clean it, wasting time. Now, on the flip side, if you've got a day where the snow is on the ground, but there's nothing in the air, it's a nice clean day. Well, then I've got a Browning Micro Medallion in a 7mm 08 that has a little 2 to 5 Leopold on it. Love that gun, but I won't carry it on a miserable day. And I would say my kill rate is about 50-50. Very good. So, obviously, you're, you're, you're going on the long track when you go on a track. I mean, this could be an all-day journey. Are you carrying uh, any kind of backpack or a fanny pack with uh, supplies in it? Yeah, I, I actually recently purchased one of Hell Blood's uh, Big Woods Bucks fanny pack, which worked tremendous for me. It's got enough room for everything I need. I snap it on, and it's right right on my back. If, um, we took, if we took the zipper and opened it up, what would be inside that? Inside of there, the first and foremost thing would be that map, the compass, and the flashlight. The extra compass actually would be in there. The other one would be on my jacket. Um, I suggest that everybody who's going to try this to take two compasses. That's not because one's going to break down. It's because you might doubt one. And when you pull the other one out and it says the same thing, you realize the compasses are right. You're not. Um, I do have a GPS now. I recommend them to anyone who's going to try this. But do know how to get out of those woods with the compass. Uh, the flashlight's essential because once it gets dark, it can be tough to read that compass. You can walk out of the woods in the dark and with the snow on the ground but you can't see your compass. The map is to confirm where you are. If you do happen to doubt it, you know you parked on Route 30. You know you went in on the east side. You look at it again. You know you got to go west to come out. Sometimes you got to look at it a couple times just to convince yourself. You go west and you'll come out. Um, I highly suggest you know a good lunch, some protein bars. You'll find those in there. You'll find a, a lighter and some sort of fire starter. Um, the fire starter and the lighter aren't because I'm afraid I'm not going to get out of the woods or I have to spend the night in the woods because I'm lost. It's because what if I get hurt? What if you, you know, sprain your ankle, hurt your back? For some reason, you have to spend the night in the woods. You definitely want to have a good fire starter and, and, and a lighter. Uh, it can make the night a lot more comfortable. Uh, after that, there's some extra ammo in there. Uh, my sling's in there. I never sling my gun unless I'm dragging my buck. Um, maybe a camera. And uh, I'm good to go. It's a pretty light pack. Yeah, very good, though. That uh, sounds like it's uh, organized well and, and uh, prepared for be useful if needed. Right. And, and if you look at my pack now or 20 years ago, that's the same thing other than the GPS. I just started using that. Gotcha. Any particular GPS that you're using? Um, I've got the Garmin 610. Um I think the biggest thing with the GPS is today is get a little familiar with it um, before you go. And I only use my GPS as a, as a tool to save me footprints on the way out. I've got some colleagues that uh, do some tracking. They don't do it exclusively. And through talking to them, I can tell they're on the GPS more than they're worried about the buck. Um, yeah. I mark my truck when I leave the, when I leave it. And I look at my GPS when I want to know where my truck is. Gotcha. That's that makes it. complete sense. Have you ever been lost in the woods, Joe? Well, I think we've all been lost in the woods. I'd be lying to you if I, if I told you I had. 
But my biggest learning curve was when I was younger, I took a track. And this is when we were tree stand sitting morning and night. And I was probably 17 years old, 18 maybe. I took a track, but before I left the tree stand, I left my heavier shirt that I sat in the tree stand with at, at the tree stand. And uh, in that shirt was my flashlight. So away I go on this track. I'm going all day. I don't even want to sit that night because he's a really big buck. About a half an hour before dark, I decide to leave him. Going to head for the truck. I know it's north. I start out north, and a half an hour later, it's dark, and I cannot see my compass. So was I lost? Not really. But could I get out of the woods? No. I ended up climbing one of the bigger ridges I came to an hour, hour and a half after dark and waited, and uh, they started shooting for me back at camp. And they came to me as much as I came to him, and, uh, you know, we walked out together. Being that I didn't have that flashlight or that artificial light, couldn't see my compass. So that was my uh, that's, uh, my learning curve on the gear. Took the words right out of my mouth on the learning curve. Yeah, there's a learning curve there. And I had one other instance that I remember that I was in on a, on a buck track. Gone a long ways. It had gotten dark, and I was headed out. And I, and I, and I wasn't real confident that I prepared myself before I left the truck on which way out was. It was an hour and a half or so after dark, and I said, if I come out to my truck tonight, I'll never be scared in the woods again. And I did, and I haven't been since. Um, I'm a big believer in knowing which way out is before you leave the truck. I mean, if, if you think about it, if the route you're on goes north and south for simplicity, uh, let's just say you're heading north, and you're going to go in on the right side, and that's the east side. You can hunt anywhere humanly possible that day on that side of the road, and at the end of the day, go west, you're going to come to the road. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. So do you need to know where you are all day? Not really. And when you hit the road, if you missed your truck by a mile, it's only 15 minutes away. Gotcha. <laughs> so Great, great advice from a tracker. Yeah. I, uh, I, I wouldn't suggest going into somebody's tent way back in the woods and taking off from there for your first track in the Adirondacks. Right. But I would suggest hunting off a road, knowing which way you went in before you leave your truck. Went in east, the road's running north and south. Know that you got to come out west and hunt all day and enjoy it. Right. Excellent wood, woodsmanship skills right there. It's perfect. Yeah. Yep. I, you know, another tidbit that I think is important that people uh, want to try this and they think they're going to take off for the day. I'll only hunt directly away from my truck till about noon, 1 o'clock. Um, it's four or five hours in. I know left or right, instead of going in deeper, is just as new a territory. And I'll be, I won't be as far from my truck. So if I leave my truck and I'm going directly away from it till noon, one o'clock, and I haven't found my track, I'll open up my map, I'll see which way has more hardwoods, and I'll head that way, left or right. I will not go deeper. Gotcha. And you'll, you'll, mm-hmm. but it's like a, it's like a circle kind of, yeah. You know, only, only you're, you're kind of teeing it there. Yeah. Like you know? But you put a stop gate and how far away you're going to get so that you get back. Yeah, and I don't turn around to go back, but I take a hard left, right. let's just say. Right. That's as new a ground as straight ahead is, only I'm not getting farther from my truck. Right. So Excellent advice. Good, yeah, good advice to not uh, not wear yourself out on the first few trips right. and not, not like tracking. Yep. I had a couple other questions, Joe, before we get into Well, your... if, I, if yeah. I can interrupt you just for a second, I was thinking on the gear thing. I didn't mention, obviously, uh, a knife, and I always bring a dragon rope with me. Mm. Uh, like I had said before, I never leave the leave the deer without dragging him at least somewhat. And if you throw a little parachute rope of some sort tied around his antlers and tied around a 30-inch stick and put it behind you and pull away. 
Very good. I, I make sure I have both of those also. Very cool. All right. I had a couple other quick wrap up questions before we get into your most memorable deer hunt, Joe. Okay. When you're out and about and over the years, is there a particular area that you tend to shoot the bucks in over others? And is there any situation where you get into the, the, just the thickest stuff you can imagine where you've got to get down and belly crawl and, and do you have to do some creative maneuvering? Yeah. To answer the first part of your question, is there any particular area that, that it seemed to shoot more of the bucks in? Um, I guess, I guess the opener of the hardwood, uh, too open is no good and too thick is no good. So as we all know, the, the white tail is a creature of the fringe, so to speak. And that's where you want to catch him. You don't want to catch him out in a real open hardwoods. He's probably going to see you before you see him. You don't really want to catch him in that real thick stuff. He's probably going to hear you or know you're coming and be gone. So I, I'd say the, uh, the fringe is where, where I want to catch him. Okay. You know, or it seems to be where they all get, get shot. Okay. All right. Very good. And what about your maneuvering? Is it, do you ever get caught on a track where you're like, I can't believe I have to go through all this stuff? Well, and that's absolutely the case. But you know what? I forget about the times that I'm on a track and I have to go through that stuff. Because I always say to myself when I get in those situations, 20 minutes from now, I'm going to be on the most beautiful hardwood ridge you've ever seen. That's what goes through my mind is I'm trying to jump from the beaver metal swamp to the, to, you know, to the stick to push away through. And I got a stick in the eye. I go, just give yourself 20 minutes. Don't lose your cool. You're going to be out of here. But the ones that stick with your memory, those ones you forget is when you get into one of those and you don't have a track. That one seems to go in the memory bank to never come back to here again. Because <laughs> you're only out looking for a track. You don't have one and you want to avoid that one. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Very good. Well, let's, uh, let's get into your most memorable deer hunt, Joe. I wanted to, there's a particular hunt I'd actually like you to take us on and that would be the, was a blue Ridge buck. Yep. The blue Ridge buck, one of my most memorable hunts for sure, because it encompasses everything that I talk about and love about tracking whitetails. Um, to tell the story, it was on a Saturday night, opening weekend of northern tier which is in that pre-rut season which is the bucks are catchable um i was watching the 11 o'clock news and it came up that there was snow in the adirondacks a snow warning in the adirondacks and warning hamilton county i couldn't believe it i was not prepared to go hunting the next day did not think we were going to get snow for weeks it's 11 o'clock news and i jump up and i'm getting my gear together i'm going hunting tomorrow northern season opened so the next morning i get up and I drive to Inlet on my way to Warren in Hamilton County, which is probably an hour and 15, hour and 20 minutes from my house, and there's no snow. I walk into the convenience store map to look for where this Warren in Hamilton County, what's the shortest way from here? I know I'm in the right direction, and I'm going to drive there, and I buy the map. I want to tell you, 25 minutes later, they were plowing the roads. <laughs> there was five inches of snow on the ground. I was like the kid in Toys R Us on the day before his birthday. I pulled my truck over. I looked at the map and I said, now, where am I going today? And I want to tell you guys, I don't know if I've ever been on that road before in my life. I'm looking at my map. The left side seemed pretty hilly. The right side had some really nice hardwood ridges. I said, I'm going to go on the right side. And on the map, it shows a trail that goes in two and a half miles and then tees. 
And there's a T there. It goes right and left. I decided I'm going to go in on that trail at two and a half miles. If I don't catch a track, I'm just going to go right up over that big ridge in front of it. So threw my gear together, took off with my 30 out six pump because there was snow on the trees and away I went. I walked at two and a quarter to two and a half miles and I never caught a deer track. And I was a little discouraged. I said, geez. And then I realized, geez, it snowed during the night. They haven't had much time to put the tracks down. The bucks aren't really looking for the doe. So just hang with it. It'll happen. I climbed that ridge at the end of the trail, went through the first saddle, and I spooked a bunch of deer. I backed out and I circled it. I did a 300-yard circle around it to see where the deer had walked into there because I couldn't tell the big tracks from the small ones while they were all running together, running through the woods. And I found out they were all does and fawns. So I said, well, no sense wasting time here. I took off again. I went about another 20 minutes and I came onto this big-looking track, but the snow now is melting out of the trees. And it's coming out in such high fashion that the track, the print, is getting distorted. So I can't tell how big the print is, but his stagger was impressive. His right side to his left side was wide. It almost looked like two separate deer walking through the woods. So I took him. I went. He was on the highway. And by on the highway, I usually lock up right there. I wait. I look it all over. I follow him for a little ways slow. I realize he's not feeding. He's not wandering. He's moving. So I took off on him. I went about 40 minutes, and the buck crossed a brand new track of a big buck, really fresh, perfect print, everything great about it. And I said, holy smokes, there's two of them in here. And I said, wait a minute. I'm in the Adirondacks. There's not two bucks this size together. This is the same buck. He just made a circle. Mm. And I was right. I could actually look from there 15 yards to my right, and there the bed was. What he had done is he had come through there, he laid, fed very little, and laid down. He was bedded right next to the highway. But he had gotten up and had left again. So here I am on his track brand new. We went on the track brand new, the moving tree stand. Because what he had done, he had eaten in the kitchen, he had laid down for a while, now he was back up for that midnight snack. And I knew it. Mm. And all I said, and I mentioned this earlier, is I hope I didn't scare him yet. Started sneaking on him one step at a time. It was about 45 minutes later. I had traveled maybe 50 yards, and I looked to my left, and there he was laying down 15 yards from me, looking the other way. Shot him in his bed. Wow. He weighed 191 pounds. He was nine and a half years old, and he was a 10-pointer. Now, hooked it, you know, obviously I gutted him out and whatnot, took the pictures, and I flipped my phone out of my pocket, which I rarely ever carry in the woods with me, but I didn't have my watch that day. I wasn't prepared. And I looked at what time it was, and I seen I had five bars. And I said, how could I have such a good signal here? But it was because I was on top of a ridge, and I phoned my brother. Yep. And I told him the story, and I, he said, well, what do you want me to do? I said, you need to come up here tonight, because by tomorrow morning, the snow is going to be gone. So he rustled up a couple of my friends, and I started dragging. And as Jay had mentioned earlier, I dragged for four hours, but it took my brother that long to come up. He had to get the friends, drive the hour and a half to two hours, and then hike in the trail I came in on. Well, when I when I met with them guys, I was totally exhausted, but I was probably the happiest hunter you'd ever seen. <laughs> and I guess to wrap the story up is everything I talk about that you can still tree stand hunt. You can still do your little drives. You can still still hunt. But when the snow hits the ground, you can go do this. And I'd never been there before. And here I am with a nine and a half year old 10 pointer. 
Uh, I just right. think it's the way to go. Right. Fascinating. I, I love the I love the concept of hunting when the elements give you the right formula. Right. Love and that yeah. concept. I, I you know like I said a couple of times, don't give up your tree stand, don't give up your bow hunting, you know, don't give up those things. But save a few days for when the snow hits, and uh, yeah. you know it, it can be really rewarding. Yeah. You know, in uh, another comparison that I do too at times is that. When you climb up in your tree stand, first part of the day, you're excited. I mean, it's just cracking daylight and things are good. An hour later, well, you hear a couple of gunshots over there and you wonder if George shot your buck and the brakes hit one time and this, that, and the other thing. And now you're looking at your watch, you're two hours in and you're saying to yourself, geez, I can make one more hour. Flip it over to tracking. You start out the first hour, you're getting away from your truck and you're, you know, you want to get in the woods. Second, third hour, you're seeing some great sign. You've seen some big rubs. You saw a scrape across a couple of deer tracks. In the fourth or fifth hour, you come across the holy cow track, and it's game on for the rest of the day. I just think it's a lot more fun. Right. Fascinating. Has there ever been a season when you didn't have snow? Yeah, a couple of years ago here, uh, I did not kill a deer in New York, and I only hunted one half a day. That was the only year I remember that we didn't have snow, and it was unfortunate, but I'll take it anyway because of the other, all the other years we did. Gotcha. Okay. You know? Very good. So. Well, excellent. Let, Joe, let's uh, turn to the 10 rapid fire questions. I'll let Dusty handle it. Are you ready okay. for Okay. I don't know if I'm ready or not, but go ahead. Let's <laughs> <laughs> get started with the 10 rapid fire questions. And Joe, I did not help you for these in any way, did I? No, you did not. Your number one best hunting tip. Uh, don't hunt deer if you're going tracking, hunt tracks. One thing that you cannot hunt without, let's say you got a lucky charm or something in your bag that you cannot go to the woods without. What is that? Uh, if I can, three things, map, compass, flashlight. Gotcha. What's your biggest pet peeve in life? Not enough snow days. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> suits you. It's perfect. Yeah. Perfect answer for a tracker. Joe, right. how, old, how old are you today, Joe? 52. What would the 52-year-old Joe tell the 32-year-old Joe, if knowing what you know today? Definitely never pass up a snow day. I wish I knew that when I was in my 20s and early 30s. I passed some up and didn't. I, I, I wish I could have those days back. Let's say you're at a, a conference or a, in a lobby of a hotel. You meet a stranger and they ask you, what do you do for a living? What do you say? I'm a dairy farmer. That's what I am. Very good. What'd you have for breakfast, Joe? Uh, English muffin, I believe. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Can't remember. (laughs) That must be that 52-year-old thing, huh? (laughs) But I just told you a story from when I was 12. (laughs) Right. That's true. That's true. It's amazing how you can remember everything hunting that's happened to you, but hardly anything else. It's that that is that is true. <laughs> Very good. You get a billboard on the side of the highway, a blank canvas, and you can put anything you want on it. What would it say? It would say, "This is my Blue Ridge buck." <laughs> There'd be a picture of me with it. Very good. <laughs> I say the word successful. Who's the first person that pops in your mind, and why? Um, the first person that pops in my mind is definitely my dad. Um, we started with a small dairy farm, and he believed in dairy farming so much. About six years ago, we became debt-free, and we've got a very successful farm. We've got, we've got 1,200 head now. 
And it was his dedication to getting to that successful level that made it happen. Very good. What's a day in your life look like? Uh, you know, checking on all the workers that I've got, making sure things are done, and doing whatever's, uh, you know, that time of year calls for on the farm. What's a hunting day look like in your life? Uh, grabbing the same gear I always grab, uh, hoping for the best snow conditions in an area that I'm heading. And I pretty much said it earlier, go find that track and have a lot of fun with that buck. Very good. Well, Joe, that wraps up the 10 rapid fire questions. Okay. We got yeah. through it. You did it. You did it, Joe. Nice job. Yeah. Uh, Joe, this quick question for you, uh, wrap this up. The other fellows that you wrote the book with, the Adirondack Deer Trackers, Mm-hmm. Steve Grabowski, Jim Massett, and Dave Williams. How are they related to you in a in a hunting sense? Well, Steve Grabowski and me became friends 25 years ago or so, and he was just getting into hunting, and I'd already been in it a long time. So that you know the the camaraderie of just hunting, not even just tracking, but just hunting, we became good friends. He, I believe, introduced me to Dave Williams, who also brook trout fishes and hunts. Uh, neither one are hunter are trackers ex- exclusively, but both of them are around my age. Steve a little younger, Dave the same age. Now Jim Massett was the mentor to all three of us. He was the guy that we we looked up to. Couldn't believe the amount of bucks he had killed. He's been a tracker. He's in his late seventies now. He's a, a legend in our area. Well, me and Jim uh, became friends twenty five years ago through I took a couple bucks to his place to have him score. And I was there about six hours, and we never scored any of the bucks. The love for the Adirondacks, just the stories, the amount of bucks that we stacked up that night was incredible. I believe I left this house at 20 or 3 in the morning. Wow. And that just became a friendship that only a few years later he asked me to help. He was doing seminars, and he asked me to come and speak at a couple of them. Of course, I was petrified. I never had a problem speaking in front of an audience, but now we're talking about a group of hunters and, you know, I'm 30 years old and, and, and he, he, Jim Massett wants me to say a few words, <laughs> Right. but I don't know as though there's been a dozen seminars since that day that either one of us has done alone. Gotcha. You know, it's, you know, we've done them together ever since. Very cool. So it's worked out and it just, uh, I got to tell you, me and Jim had always wanted to write a book. I was very interested in writing a book. Uh, but Dave Williams and Steve Grabowski were the two that kind of pushed and made it happen. Gotcha. So. Gotcha. Well, thank you for sending me my copy, by the way. And the, uh, yep. the, the, the note on the inside and, and your signature is, is priceless. And I appreciate you doing that. You and betcha. If other people listening to this show want to find that book or find out more about you or your group, is there a place that we can go on social media or on a bookstore anywhere to, to get these things? Absolutely. If you go to ADK Trackers, it's for Adirondack Trackers, you can definitely purchase the book on there. Uh, it's, that's uh, the place where um, everybody who doesn't come to one of our shows uh, has to go to it. Um, we are going to go into, we believe, one of the book carriers, maybe even North Country Books. Okay. Uh, it could be in the stores as soon as a couple of months from now. Before right now, ADK Trackers will get you the right spot. Uh, the book is called, uh, you know, Stories is Told in Deer Camp, uh, you know, by us, uh, Adirondack Trackers. And uh, it is a storybook. Uh, as you've seen, every few pages is a different story with uh, lots of photographs. Yeah. 
our goal of the book was if you went out and hunted all day and either had success or had a close call or didn't have success and you stepped into the camp and we said, hey, how was your day? You told us. Right. That's how we wanted to print the story. Right. And uh, we, we've had some really good reviews. We've had some good luck with it. And uh, we hope nice. it keeps going. And then the other thing that I love about this book, Joe, is that mm-hmm. the copyright's 2016. So this thing hasn't really seen the light of day yet. So this, no. it's just getting out there. Right. Right. It yeah. really is. And that's awesome. I love that. Yeah. Excellent. Yep. Excellent. I, I, I was very happy with the guys and, and the, how the book turned out. Um, you know, the Steve and Dave, like I said, were more into the to the graphic design, the size, the where the photographs went and whatnot. And they, I think they did a fantastic job. And I'm not just saying it because I'm in it. I'm just saying it. I, I really like it. Right. Very cool. I appreciate that. And I'm sure our listeners will appreciate everything. And, and, and Joe, I got to say, it's been an honor and a pleasure to have you on the yeah. show. It's, you know, we get certain requests now and then. Uh, but your name was was one of those guys that kept popping up. So now was well, the time I'm, to get it done. Yeah, I'm super happy that you guys had me on. I enjoyed it. I hope uh, I hope it all comes out good. What a what a pleasure it was to have Joe on the show talking about tracking. And I get, we have had a lot of requests to talk more about the Northeast style of hunting with tracking. And I guess living in the Northeast. I tend to forget about it because uh, it's like you you just kind of grow around it. And I always forget that, you know, this needs to be covered too. Yeah, super interesting. You know, and it it makes me want to, uh, Joe's talking about and and go back into the Lane Benoit podcast and dig into this a little deeper, Jay, and try to use the same strategies on a large piece of public land here in Ohio and see if I can't uh, get into a mature buck in the snow. I I think I want to try it here. I think you can do it as long as it's a big enough track, but in, that's the trick. Like you run out of ground, right? I can that's, even run around out of ground here because the posted, even though there aren't a lot of posted lands or posted pieces, I will bump into them. There's no question. Yeah, there's, yeah, there's no doubt about it. But I think if I can get into a, a national forest or something in south, southeast or eastern Ohio, I can really do a little bit of traveling and, and see what I come up with as far as tracking and mature whitetail. I would love to join you on that. I think that would be a blast. Bring some cameras, bring some audio equipment, yeah, see how we do. It's something I've never done. Right. I've never, never really thought about getting on a track because you walk across 100 acres, you're on somebody else's property here. Right. But I think if we go down to a large piece of public land yep. that's uh, four or 5,000 acres, you could actually track and, and be successful at it. Right. I agree. I think you can. And I, I, what I like, and of course the, the deer are huge down there that would be indistinguishable, I would imagine, or yeah, no com- com- completely distinguishable. Yeah. I think that there's a whole lot of them. Uh, oh my God tracks here. <laughs> I think there's the holy, holy, holy God tracks down there. Right. Right. right for sure. I think that, uh, it'd be, it'd be super interesting. Really. Yeah. It'd be awesome for like deer gun week to get a good snow and take off on mm-hmm. a track. Sweet. Mm-hmm. Right. I don't think I'd want to do it with archery equipment, but no. I think, Shotgun week or muzzleloader weekend. If you could get a snow here, it'd be phenomenal. Right. right. Hmm. Let's let's uh, let's put a pin in that one. That could be very interesting. Yeah, for sure. I, what I worry about is so many large buck tracks that you you can't stay on one in particular. That is also true. Yeah, you know, where you have several three and four year olds. If that seven year old, the eight year old shows up, there might be a bunch of those too. Right. Yeah. That that's that's the. Right. 
Oh, that that's the issue, really. You could be in a 500-acre track and have four eight-year-old bucks roaming. Right. It works here because it's sparse it's and there are just a few bucks correct. to pick from. Correct. Down there, it might get confusing. Yeah, it really could. There's no doubt about it. No doubt in my mind. Right. I mean, I've seen uh, four mature bucks on a 10-acre patch in one night. Right. Hmm. I say we give it a shot anyway, see what happens. Yeah, I think it'd be awesome, for right. sure. No good. doubt and it would be phenomenal right. on a large piece of land and work through a track. Be our little test tube. Yeah. Hunt. Yeah, it'd be interesting. Yep. Very cool. Well, I appreciate Joe coming on and satisfying the needs of some of our Northeast listeners that need, need to hear some more tracking advice. And he certainly was well-versed and well-spoken and carried his message to us very well. So it's very clear, gave us a really nice picture of how to go about tracking. For sure. I learned a lot, and I'm not a tracker. Very nice. So, Dusty, do we have a Chubby Times Tip of the Week? Yeah, we do, Jane. It's going to get into a little bit about uh, some conversation I've been having. The Chubby Times Tip of the Week is sponsored by Morse's Sporting Goods. Firearms, use firearms, bows, use bows. Located at 85 Kentucky Falls Road in Hillsborough, New Hampshire. Give Jim a call at 603-464-3444, morse'ssportinggoods.com. Your dollars go further in New Hampshire. There's no sales tax. Morse's Sporting Goods. Uh, a couple of phone calls, a couple of emails about uh, weeds and my food plot. And, uh, you know, everybody says, oh, I need to spray this, spray that, spray this. Well, there's a lot of things out there that uh, chemical-based that when you spray something, that you need to give it a 30-day period for that chemical to, you know, when you're feeding livestock, you're kind of controlling it. If you're, you know, mowing hay or uh, you mow mowing clover for cows, you control when you mow it, when the cows receive it. So something you got to keep in mind when you're getting into chemicals with, with whitetail is that you don't want to go spray something on your food plot and, and take a chance that it's, it, it could kill off your whole deer herd. So with that in mind, uh, if you got a grass food plot, uh, let's say like alfalfa, clover, uh, you know, you maybe threw some Timothy in there, some orchard grass, maybe some brom grass, and maybe some rye grass. The best method is to mow that to keep the weeds out. If you continue, if you uh, continuously mow it on a regular basis, not not necessarily mow it like your lawn, but uh, you know most uh, grasses and and uh, clover is usually a thirty to forty day maturity. So when you mow it, you got thirty days, let it grow, and it's going to bloom. Especially clover, alfalfa, things of that nature, they're going to bloom out, and then. You're going to see that bloom. That's when the most nutrition's in the plants when the bloom hits. And then once it starts to come out of the bloom, it's time to mow that down and create that new growth. By doing that, you'll, you'll get in there and you'll keep con- mowing them weeds down. And the whole key to weeds is, is not to let them mature enough where they actually seed out. So keep that in mind and uh, keep up on your food plots as far as mowing them. And I think it'll control your weeds the more regularly you put the mow to them. It is amazing how much you know about food plots. It, it's uh, it's so foreign to me because <laughs> of where I live and what I grew up with and being you know the the tracker type hunter, right? Because I don't need that. You know, it's not anything I ever needed. And it, I mean, you just listed like twenty different species of grasses and and plants. I'm like, <laughs> it's, it's unreal. You're just you're just rolling off the back of your your tongue with no problem. Yeah, I, you know, just being raised around Jay and. And having an interest in that and, and something that I've always just uh, 
it, it almost comes naturally because I've been around it, you know. And, and a lot of people call me. They say, hey, I planted a clover plot. Man, the weeds are terrible. I say, well, just go in there and mow it down. They're like, what do you mean? I'm like, just go mow it. Clover is a tonnage producer. The more you mow it, the more tonnage it makes. And, and keep that in mind, though. It's got a, it's got a period there, 30 days, 35 days. And it's, it's got a blooming until uh, it matures. Once it blooms, it matures. And then it's, it's okay to mow it. It's going to recreate the same plant you're mowing down. But while you're mowing it, you're, you're nipping off them weeds and you're, you know, continuing. Just like your lawn, you get dandelions over the season, you start mowing them. And they, it's almost like they give up because they're constantly trying to recreate. The same way with weeds. A lot of weeds are annuals. Uh, I know foxtail with it being a wet year this year. Foxtail is really bad around here. And, uh, you know, that's an annual. That's going to freeze out. Hopefully by next year, you if you're having... You know, uh, foxtail issue, foxtail a lot of times comes on from bare spots in the dirt. So what that tells me is that maybe you didn't put down enough seed. So if you're getting foxtail shoots in your food plots, there's not enough seed there to actually create uh, proper coverage to keep uh, a foreign weed out of, the, out of your food plot. But wow. if you go in there and you mow that down and, and uh, keep it mowed and, and keep it manicured, it's just, it's just like your lawn. But it's a food plot. So, you know, try to stay away from the chemicals as much as you can. Chemicals hurt deer. Uh, you, you don't want that. You don't want to eat that. You don't want that to, you know, be in your deer. It just it's no good for nothing. You know, same way thing with livestock. Yeah, we spray we spray crops and we spray hay and and but there's a there's a grace period there that you gotta abide by what the you know what the label tells you if it says it's got a 30-day period where you shouldn't be feeding it out then you need to wait that 30 days before you go in there and mow the hay down but no different deer you got to consider their health and their well-being um you know just like you're raising a a a good taste in beef you got to consider everything that you do for livestock you got to consider it for deer so if you go in there and spray chemicals on a on a food plot and it says that it needs to you need to wait 30 days for something that uh, ingest it uh, the deer will come that night and eat that, and you're taking a chance that you may kill your whole herd off. So just keep all that in mind. You know, somebody may say, "Oh yeah, spray this on that, on this, on that," but somewhere there, there's a label on that chemical. When you buy a jug of chemical, there's a label there that states what you can and cannot do, and you need to focus on that. And that's that's something that's overlooked, and people don't even think about. Oh man, the deer come in there and ate that last night. That chemical got in their system, and no wonder I'm not seeing that mature buck. He died because I killed him. Right. So, you know, a lot of times weeds, if you mow them down, they're going to stay, they're going to, they're going to go away. So, you know, a tractor and a bush hog or a weed eater, if you got a small food plot, go in there with a weed whip and just trim it down. Uh, you know, anything like clover, alfalfa, chicory, or not chicory, but uh, rye grass or a Kentucky bluegrass or even a, a fescue or uh, it, it's going to reproduce a plant after the trim. So, you know, trimming it down will help you control the weeds. Very cool. So tonnage with the clover just means that if you cut it down, it comes back more so? Yeah, it just keeps creating tonnage. And okay. what I mean tonnage is how much it yields over, uh, you know, a non-frost uh, season, which is the spring, summer, and fall. Okay. So let's say you go and plant a clover, uh, clover food plot, um, you know, last week of May or March, mid-April, somewhere in there. So now from... From April, May, 1st of June, you probably need to go in there and mow that down. It's created all the maturity that it's going to get. It'll, it'll over-ripen and keep growing, but then it gets real thick, and it, and it, it gets real stemmy, and uh, the deer don't like it. So if you go in there and mow that down, 
the next growth will be softer, more flavorful, and better nutrition. Then you go and mow down down again, and that third cutting, that third growth will be even softer, even more loaded with nutrition because the plant's smaller, so it's actually sucking more into the plant because it's not feeding this big, large, huge, mature plant. And then you mow it down a fourth time, and it gets even better. And every time you mow that, you, you, you're creating new growth. So new growth means better flavor. And if it's like me, if I go somewhere and I got a bad steak, I'm not going back there and eat a bad steak. So the deer, same way, if they go in that food plot, they eat that clover, and it's like, ah, it's too stemmy and mature and got a sour taste to it because it's rotted underneath all the, the viney leaves, and it creates almost like a... a almost like a manure pile and it, it starts to break down and deteriorate and create mulch underneath there because it's, it's holding moisture and, and the heat from the sun's getting in there and it's almost like it's baking it and making it sour tasting. So the deer are not going to come back to that food plot, but if you keep it cut, trimmed and, and producing good flavor, good nutrition and something that they can enjoy eating, they're going to come back to it on a regular basis. Gotcha. Great, great, great. Chubby Tines tip of the week. Very nice. Well, thank you to Morse Sporting Goods for sponsoring the Chubby Tines Tip of the Week. And I'd also like to say thank you to all of our sponsors. Without them, this show is not possible. And specifically, I'd like to say thank you to Advanced Takedown Tree Stands, Covert Scouting Cameras, the Horny Buck Seed Company, and once again, Morse Sporting Goods. I truly believe in each and every product that we're advertising on this show. We've tried them all. We've been to the stores. Each and every one are absolutely high-quality, high-grade products. And if you're shopping for any one of these types of items, Please give our sponsors a shot first. Dusty, where can we find you when you're not hanging out here in the studios with me? Uh, shoot me an email, dusty at bigbuckregistry.com. You can look me up on Instagram and Twitter at Chasing Antler, facebook.com forward slash chubby tines outdoors. Jay, where can the people reach out to you when you're not on the mic? Likewise, you can shoot me an email, jay at bigbuckregistry.com, and you can visit us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash bigbuckregistry. We're also on Twitter, which is twitter.com forward slash bigbuckregistry. We're also on Instagram, instagram.com forward slash bigbuckregistry, and YouTube, which is youtube.com forward slash bigbuckregistry. On YouTube, you can listen to all of our podcasts in their entirety. As far as videos are concerned, it's a boring video, but the audio content is there, so you can actually listen to our podcast. You can also listen to all of our live shows that we've done on Thursday nights when we do do them, and we've gone back and interviewed, re-interviewed a lot of our previous guests we had on the show just to put a face to a voice, let's put it that way. You can always listen to our show on other places as well, not just YouTube. We're found on iTunes, iHeartRadio, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher, and Blueberry. And if you would like to submit a buck to our page for consideration and be featured on our page in front of 250,000 diehard deer hunting fans, all you have to do is go to bigbuckregistry.com forward slash my buck and all of the instructions will be right there. I think that's pretty much everywhere we're at. I think that's a wrap, Dusty. That's a whole lot of big buck, Jay. Sure is. I'm Jay Scott. I'm Dusty Phillips. And this is the Big Buck Registry's Deer Hunting Podcast. We'll see you next week. Can't wait. 